Good morning. You see in your order of worship that we are in the kind of towards the beginning of a sermon series out of 1 Samuel. Pastor Brian started last week uh, that series, and uh, this is the season of Epiphany in the life of the church. Um, some of us are familiar with that, others maybe not, but Epiphany is kind of the season of light when we remember that Jesus is the light of the world who has come into the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome him. And so during this season, we'll be looking at 1 Samuel, the first kind of handful of chapters of that Old Testament book. And I want us to reflect on a theme that's in the book, the Lord sees not as humans see. We look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so part of what the book asks consistently is what does it mean for God to see our hearts, to see to the depths of us? For us to encounter God at the deep levels of our hopes, our fears, our shame, or our grief, our joy. In order to reflect on that question, we're going to look at the stories of, of Hannah, Samuel, Eli, along with some broader national stories of Israel and the Philistines. And this morning we're going to continue looking at the story of Hannah in chapter 2. But before we read that, I want to and tell you a story I saw on the, online recently. It's about a man named Bernardo. Bernardo is a Brazilian soccer player. And the story goes that he was on the field in pain with an injury during a recent match. He was laying on the field for a while, and the trainer went out to check on him. And after the trainer talked to him for a while, the trainer called for the medical cart to come over. Not all games have this, but this was like a little golf cart that would drive across the field with a stretcher on the back to help Bernardo. So the, Bernard, sorry, the medical cart drives across the field. Bernardo was on the far side of it. As it drives closer to him, the driver accidentally ran over Bernardo's foot. So given the soccer player's occasional exaggeration of injuries, the commentator said, if he wasn't really injured before, he is now. In the video, you can see the driver and the passenger not taking it too seriously for they're laughing at what happened, and the commentator is laughing as well. And see so if you can picture Bernardo being hit by the medical cart while he's lying there injured. This is a silly image, a silly story that maybe helps us to see something very serious about Hannah. And I want to talk about Hannah before we read our passage. Hannah's experience, when we meet her in chapter 1, if you were here last week, maybe you remember that she is facing the deep personal sorrow and the painful cultural shame of being barren. She longs for a child. In the midst of her hurt, those near her offer little help. Instead of making it better, they wound her. Like the cart that adds to Bernardo's injury, those close to Hannah mock her, impatiently wonder why she can't get over or let go of her sadness, and even rebuke her emotional stirring as one who's out of control or, or maybe even drunk. And I imagine that, that many of us here can relate to Hannah's longing, and maybe even can relate to those being near to us instead of bringing comfort, wound us. Last week, Brian started our series by looking at Hannah's story. And in chapter 1, we are told that Hannah is married to Elkanah, and that Elkanah has two wives, 
Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah. And Peninnah has children, but Hannah does not. And Peninnah uses this opportunity to provoke and to mock Hannah. She mocks her because she has no children. And in Hannah's longing and in her mistreatment, the text says that Hannah's heart roars like a great storm. Hannah's heart stirs with grief. And it's from this troubled and sorrowful heart that Hannah comes to God. In the temple in Shiloh, where Eli is the priest, Hannah prays with great emotion and honesty. Such emotion stirring in her that Eli sees Hannah and it concludes that she must be drunk. Why would someone be moved in this way in the temple otherwise? But Hannah replies, I am a woman with a troubled spirit. I have not drunk wine or strong drink, but I am pouring out my soul before God. All along I have been speaking out my great anxiety my great vexation. What does Hannah pray? We don't know all the words of her anxiety. We don't know all the stirrings of her heart. But we know that she said these words to God. O Lord, if you indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and forget me not, but give, me your, give your servant a son, then I will give him to you, Lord, all the days of his life. Well, the pouring out of her soul filled Hannah with peace, and she returned home. And this chapter 1 tells us, in time, due time, barren Hannah conceives and bears a son, and she names him Samuel, which means God has heard. When Samuel was around four or five years old, Hannah brings him to the temple in Shiloh to Eli the priest, and she says, remember, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition. Therefore I give him to the Lord as long as he lives. I lend him to the Lord. And after presenting Samuel to the Lord and making a sacrifice, Hannah offers a prayer. She has spoken a prayer of grief and of a stirring, anxious heart, a storm within her, and now she offers a hymn of joy. It's our passage this morning. The passage is very significant in the book of Samuel and Scripture, really, and I want to spend actually two Sundays looking at it. This morning we're going to look at the first part of Hannah's personal hope. And then next week we'll look at how this song, this prayer, points to the coming of God's kingdom, what it will be like. So let's look at our passage. This is 1 Samuel Han, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, Hannah's prayer to God. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. 
He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall, not, shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, we come to you that you would speak to us. That by your word and by your spirit that you would be present here, that we may hear and that we may be moved in repentance and faith, that we might find rest and hope in you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to spend a couple, two weeks looking at this. And so this morning I want to look at this kind of Hannah's personal expression of hope, the first part of the prayer. And you might have noticed that she begins with her own experience. My heart, my horn, or can be translated, my head or my strength, my mouth, I am saying these things. One translation expresses it, I am bursting with good news, I am walking on air, I am laughing. Hannah certainly has something to be happy about. The desires for a child have been fulfilled. And out of her own experience, she affirms that the Lord, far from despising her, far from forgetting her, has known all about her, heard her, and has answered her prayer. This song, this prayer that Hannah offers, it draws from the Psalms, it draws from the liturgy of the Old Testament people. And Hannah expresses a testimony using these language drawn from the Psalms. My heart exults in the Lord. My horn, my head is lifted up in God. My mouth swallows my enemies because I rejoice in what God has done. This repetition of this personal expression is paralleled by Hannah's description of the God to whom she is praying. You notice the next section, three times God's uniqueness is described. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And we're reminded that this song is rooted not in Hannah, but rooted ultimately in the nature of God. It flows out of the assurance of God's being. None holy, none beside you. No rock like our God. I want to take a moment just to think about those descriptions. The, the Lord is holy, in this case meaning that God is impartial, that God is not beholden to the proud, not beholden to those who have what they want, not beholden to the strong or the resource, but that God acts with righteousness, with a special eye to those who have need. And this gracious God, there is none like God. He is above all other powers. There might be those who are strong in the moment to mock. There might be those who would boast in what they have. There might be some who have influence or significance in a world around us. But Hannah remembers that they are not rivals to the Lord. There is none beside you. And Hannah celebrates that the Lord hears her and is above all others who might ignore or cast a hard word to her. And this God is a rock. The Lord cannot be moved, and he offers a place for our feet, even when all else is shifting, quaking, or stirring and falling. What do we see about our God? Hannah invites us to pray and to see our Lord as the one who has the power to transform 
and the willingness to intervene, especially on the behalf of the powerless. The Lord is not haughty nor weak, but possesses like no other the combination of steadfast love, of mercy, affection for the fallen, and the power to lift. What is the hope of the one who is barren? What is the hope of the people who are oppressed? It is the Lord who sees, the Lord who remembers, the Lord who hears the rock. This is what Hannah invites us to see. As we reflect on it, maybe as being our own prayer, something that we would enter into, it's possible that we can see this and simply dismiss it at, at one thought. Look, Hannah got what she wanted. So she's happy, right? And we can leave it at that. But I want to suggest to us as we think about her hope and her prayer that there's more to consider. There's more going on in her heart around joy than just that she gets what she wants. As we think about our own longings, we think about entering into this prayer with Hannah, I want to identify two errors or two false paths that we might walk down. The first one being that Hannah is happy because she beat her rivals. She engaged her rival. She faced the cultural expectations and she won the game that was before her. Do you see what that means? That there is those around her. She faces Peninas, sorry, that's hard. Peninas mocking. She faces that mocking and the idea that she isn't a woman, she doesn't bear a child, which is very much the culture of her day. She accepts those conditions. She accepts those criteria. But look, she says that she has it now. She has what Penina has. She has what the culture expected of her. I'm okay because I have a child. She's happy because she won. Or to say it another way, a false path is I'll be better. And I can tell everyone to be quiet when I get what they have. There's an author named Rene Girard who writes about something called mimetic desire or triangular desire. The triangle has three parts and it goes like this, that there is the desired object and there is the two people who want that same thing. And Gerard writes in those moments when we're close to someone else who wants the same thing as us, that it's very possible and very likely that we become rivals with them. We don't necessarily mean to, excuse me, but by wanting the same thing, we begin to not only desire the object, but we begin to desire to overcome the person who's close to us. That might look all sorts of ways. It might look like a neighbor's who become rivals over the state of the grass in their yard, over the Christmas decorations, who's looked the best or most extravagant, to co-workers seeking the same advancement, to siblings fighting for the attention of a parent, or even pastors arguing over whose sermons are better or whose churches are more significant, or in the case of Penina, being a mother, becoming a parent. Any desire that we have, if there's someone near us who might share the same desire, they can become a rival to us. And it's possible that we can see Hannah's experiences that she faced her rival and she made her rival be quiet. Look, Hannah faced her rival. She caught up. She took away the boasting. 
And I don't know how that strikes you, but this is one way, a very common way, and one natural to our hearts that we deal with our longings and our sorrows. I'll be better when I get what that person has. I'll be better when I face and meet the expectations of those around me. I'll be better when I can silence the voices, whether in my head or the words that my rivals speak. But there's something else happening. Hannah prays that the Lord has interceded to break this rivalry, to give Hannah value and blessing apart from those around her. You see, defining ourselves and our worth through rivals always creates despair, always sows seeds of hate, always fosters arrogance. But this is not the path marked by Hannah's prayer. Do you see the warning that she adds? The arrogant and the proud need to close their mouths. Here's a warning about self-sufficient boasters. See, her prayer offers a different way. It's not the path that I will overcome or I'll meet the expectations of my rivals or the culture around me. The path is that the Lord lifts her head. My horn, my head exalts. My head has been lifted in the Lord. We don't have to really think too much about why Hannah's head has been down, right? The haughtiness of those around her, the haughtiness of the privileged, or the voices around that filled with arrogance who seem so secure as they tell her how she has failed, who remind her what she does not have. Hannah knows loss and longing but also the arrogant treatment of those who have what they want. But Hannah celebrates a change. My horn, my head has been lifted. The reference here is to, in the Psalms, is the horn of an animal, the head of an animal that is lifted as a powerful animal in victory, raised in triumph. And Hannah is saying, my head, for so long bowed down, has now been lifted by my God. He's drawing from language from Psalm 3 when saying that, David writes that my enemies surrounded me. My enemies said, there is no hope for you. But Lord, you are a shield around me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Who is our God? The God is not the one who crowns the, the victor over the rivalry, the one who beats all the expectations of the culture. Our God is the one who lifts the head of his people even when it's cast down. The arrogant delight that they are over another. With confidence, the arrogant can say, nothing will change. But with the Lord, you raise my head high. An image of dignity and honor, saying, you are mine. There's many ways that we might go about trying to lift our heads but only the Creator, only your Creator can lift your head, the one who has filled you with value, the one who has made you and has given your gifts to you. Only your Redeemer can ultimately lift your head, the one who sees all of your brokenness and all of your sin, but has moved towards you in grace to say that you are mine. To lift one's own head, or to lift one's head by entering into this mimetic, triangular desire of defeating a rival, is simply a path of pride and arrogance, a path of despair, a path of hate. In the face of difficulty and powerlessness, the mistreatment of others, Hannah acknowledges her vulnerability 
And she turns to the true source of her glory and her dignity, which is the God himself. There's possible ways for us to walk a path that leads us to not joy, but of arrogance. And so one way of doing that is by engaging in beating our rivals. Another way that this passage invites us to think about a false path is to come to the conclusion that if Hannah gets what she wants, then she's, everything's fine. There's no more wounds, no more sorrow. If I get what I want, if I have everything, then everything will be fine. Or to put it another way, nothing will be okay until I get what I desire. And when I get it, all things will be okay. That when we get what we want, when Hannah gets with that child, that all her sorrows and all her wounds are forgotten. This is not true. We know as human beings that that's not how our life works. There's an author named Shelley Rambo who writes and explores grief and trauma through Christian theology. And one of the things that she does exploring wounds and trauma is to think about Jesus, the resurrected one, how he has wounds still on his skin. The one who entered into death and rose from the dead, who walked out of the tomb when he appeared, he still had the marks of the nails in his hands and the wound in his side. And Rambo asks, why is that? And she points out that there's numerous commentators who seem uncomfortable with the fact that Jesus would still have these marks on his skin. And many who say that as Jesus continued in his resurrection or even ascended into heaven, those wounds go away. But she wants to invite us back to ask, why does Christ still bear these wounds? Surely to show that he is the one that died and now given, brought the new life, but also to walk into a new way of thinking about our woundedness. That when we come to faith or when we get what we desire, those wounds don't just go away. In the wounds of Christ, we see the possibility that there is something different. They're no longer open wounds, and the skin is not smooth. But these scars, they remind us of past suffering but they point to a future of a new being, a new way. In the Gospel of John, we're told that eternal life, Jesus prays and says that eternal life is knowing the one that the Father sent. Eternal life is having faith in him. I mention that because eternal life, the resurrection, is not just something future, that one day all things will be passed away, all things will be right. That is the case. We see that in Jesus. But it's possible that our wounds, when they are healed, when the scar is there but they are healed, that we're reminded that God's at work healing us now. And in that healing, our skin doesn't become smooth, but we remember our suffering, but we have hope that there is something more than that suffering in our life. Grief, joy, pain, pleasure, they are part of our lives. It's in the context of God's care, his lifting of our heads, that our scars are not simply marks of suffering, but places of healing. And for Hannah, the place of her woundedness, the place of her longing and limitations, the place of mistreatment by others, becomes the very place that she encounters who God is. These marks, these wounds, these scars on her skin become the place in which she knows her God. 
Invite us to think about that possibility in our life. The options are not just open wounds or smooth skin, but possibly marks in which we encounter God in a new way. John Calvin, when talking about Christ and his wounds, he says that we are bound up, when we have faith in Christ, we are no longer on our own, but we are bound up with Christ, carried with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And Calvin describes that union as an engrafting. The Spirit attaches us to Christ, stitches our bodies together. Engrafting, right, is the image coming out of plants that there would take a strong plant and a weak plant, make cuts in both of them and, and attach them together, that over time the weak plant would begin to feed off of life of the strong one. And over time they would become one plant together. Calvin's inviting us to see that this is the nature of what happens in our union with Christ. When we have faith in Christ, we are bound to Him. The two become one through the incision, through the wound, given to both the strong and the weak, that they become one. The wounds of Jesus' flesh are the very points of our entry. The wounds of Jesus' flesh, those incisions, are the very points in which we become one with Him the points of our union, the points of our becoming and giving us new life. We can ask the same of us, what if our wounds, what if our woundedness is the very point in which we are engrafted ourselves? That our wounds are united with the wounds of Christ. And here are the points, here is the process by which we find a new way of living. Beyond the words and actions of others, beyond our limits and brokenness. Hannah invites us to consider not just that everything will be fine if we get what we desire, but when she talks about her head being lifted up and the Lord being her rock, that our wounds, our marks of our brokenness, our marks of human limitation may be recreated as places of participation with God. Places which God comes to us. Hannah's heart turns to the Lord. She turns with joy because God has heard her. God has seen her and remembered her. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted. My head is lifted in God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are. And we thank you, Lord, for your word that speaks to the depths of us. We come as a broken people, knowing our limitations, knowing our hurts, and that we are quick to turn in all sorts of ways to try to deal with them. Lord, we pray that we would find you as the lifter of our head, and that in our wounds we would see yours, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.